John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is, the high priestly prayer of John 17, we spent the last two weeks on, took him three minutes, took us two weeks, but that's the way it is. When he had spoken these things, he finishes his prayer. We're told he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. The Kidron Ravine, or the Kidron Valley, as we often call it today, drops a good 200 feet from the Temple Mount platform where it stands today. It would have dropped even lower in Jesus' day. Um, The floor of the Kidron today is about 30 feet higher than it was at the time of Christ. Because of all the destruction and the debris that has taken place in Jerusalem over the years, all that debris has just been pushed over and shoved down. And so the valley floor of the Kadron is, is again, 30 feet higher than it used to be. Jesus said that would happen. He said in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And indeed it has been. But the Kadron Valley, the word ravine is used here. Interesting word, ravine in the Greek, it's kimaros, and kimaros means winter flow. So the Kadron winter flow, because a brook used to flow, still can, still does, but a brook flowed through the basin. In the winter, it would swell to a torrent. In the summertime, it could be dried to a hard pan creek bed. A true mid-eastern wadi. And that's what wadis do. In the, in the rainy season, you watch out because they will flow to flood stage. But in the summer, they will look like not a drop of water is anywhere near. The kidron, the word kidron in the Hebrew, means dark or turbid or thick or, or opaque. And the reason for this is interesting. That that winter flow, as you can imagine, would stir up the dusty wadi floor as the rains rushed along it each year. And so it would tend to be a muddy-looking riverbed anyway, a muddy-looking flow. But there's another reason that they called it the Kidron, the darkness, the dark. Josephus tells us that in the first century, on the times of sacrifice, and specifically at Passover, Upwards of 256,000 lambs would be sacrificed in the temple. That's a lot of blood. As a matter of fact, and I did the math, I actually sat down and did this this week, that we're talking upwards of 3 million liters or 700,000 gallons of blood. That's enough to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool. All this blood has to go somewhere, and so it would go from the temple courts through channels down into the Kadron Valley, mixing then with the water as it flowed by, making it a very dark, reddish, muddy mass, a thick crimson red. Jesus knew this. I wonder if he thought, as he crossed the Kadron, as he stepped across the ravine with the eleven, if he thought about the fact that his blood was about to flow like the Passover lambs. That it would be His blood flowing through the valley of the shadow of death. His blood in the final Passover sacrifice. The brook Kidron. As familiar as it may seem, and you've heard me use the word Kidron many times. It's come up a number of different times in our Bible studies, and yet for all that, it's only mentioned 11 times in the Bible. 
Ten times in the Hebrew Scriptures, one time in the New Testament, and that's right here. It's the only mention here. So why does John do it? Why is it important? When you have a single use of a single word in the entire New Testament, there's got to be something important about it. And John mentions that they went over the ravine of the Kadron. Why'd they do it? Well, duh, it's the only way to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're going to go from Jerusalem over to the Mount of Olives, you have to go across the Kadron Valley. And that's true. But what's interesting to me is here, this is the last mention of the Kadron in the Scriptures. If you go all the way back to the very first mention of the Kadron Valley, something else took place. Someone else went over the ravine of the Kadron in interestingly similar circumstances. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23 says, While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. What's going on there? David's son Absalom has betrayed him. David is, uh, Absalom is now trying to overthrow his father's kingdom, and David, for his own safety, has to flee his beloved Jerusalem. David, having been betrayed, King David is betrayed, he flows across, rushes across the Kadron, leaving behind Jerusalem, leaving behind his seat of rightful rule. Same thing for the son of David. Being betrayed, crosses the Kadron, leaving the seat of his rightful rule, where he would rule, will rule one day, could have ruled had Israel received him. And he crossed the Kadron as his father David did a thousand years before. But remember this, just as David would return to Jerusalem, and he did, Absalom was killed, overthrown to David's great sorrow, but David would come back across the Kadron and up into Jerusalem and regain, reclaim his throne. Jesus will return the same way. Jesus will return from the east over the Kadron to claim his throne. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Ezekiel 43 verse 4 says, the the prophet is seeing this in vision, said, I saw the glory of the Lord. He came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. The prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 39 says, The Lord is speaking, that He says, All the fields as far as the brook Kedron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. I remember the first time I saw the Kedron. We drove in that big tour bus up along east of Jerusalem, up atop the Mount of Olives. We paused and piled out of the bus and walked over to a wall, a short wall about three, four feet high on the top of the Mount of Olives and we looked down and there was the Temple Mount. Those of you who have seen it know it's one of the most breathtaking things you will ever see. Not because of the structures on the Mount, but because of the realization of where you stand, of where you are. Of what happened there, of Jesus, knowing Jesus came over the Mount of Olives, walked down the Mount, across the Kadron, and into Jerusalem, every time He came into Jerusalem. And when He was staying in Jerusalem for feasts and festivals, He would stay across the Mount of Olives, typically at Lazarus' home, 
home of Mary and Martha as well. He'd stay with them and then he'd go over the mountain and into the city about a two mile walk or so. And to stand and look across that ravine and into Jerusalem is an amazing sight. You're looking from east to west. The Kadron Valley running along the very eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. Well now get this picture in your mind. It's night. The Passover meal has been shared. Jesus and the apostles. He has given them that, that, that night of betrayal discourse. He's prayed for them. That amazing prayer. And now, having walked part of the way, they continue on across the Kadron where there was a garden, we're told, in which He entered with His disciples. Another landmark there east of Jerusalem, the Garden of Gatshemen, Gethsemane, as we say it. In Hebrew, Gatshemen, it means the olive oil press, or the olive press. The garden filled with olive trees. There are still some of those trees there today. Experts believe some of them may even be upwards of 2,000 years old. Olive trees live on and on and on. They continue to grow. We know how old they are because they get big. And they'll die on the inside, but they'll grow on the outside. And there in Gethsemane, Jesus went there. Jesus, you know the story, would be pressed. He would be squeezed as He faced the heaviest reality of all history. That is our sin. Our sin bearing down on the Son of Man, pressing in from all sides. Luke would tell us His sweat would become as great drops of blood. Hematidrosis, they call it. And He would be there pressed as He, as he accepted the Father's will. This is that night. This is about to be that moment. Jesus going through that time of prayer. But you know what? John doesn't even mention it. He doesn't get into it at all. Matthew talks about it. Mark points it out. Luke gives us that that medical picture, truly, of the bleeding through the sweat glands as he prayed in great duress. John doesn't talk about it. We just come into the garden and suddenly pick it up in verse 2. And there's a reason for this, by the way, and I will point this out a couple of times tonight, so just tuck this in the back of your minds. John's purpose is different here than the rest of the Gospel writers. We know the story. John's not just telling a story. John is expressing a truth. So keep that in the back of your minds. Verse 2, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with His disciples. This was supposed to be a haven. You know, this this was the hiding place, the refuge, the retreat that Jesus shared with His boys. They all knew about this kind of secret place. This was like the fort. You know, it's like the He-Man Women Haters Club. You know, just the guys know, and the guys go meet there. And this, this is our spot, man. And, and, and Jesus would, would sleep out sometimes under the stars overnight there in Gethsemane. If they didn't want to make the trek all the way back over to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. He'd stay there. And, and they knew this. It was, the, it was the haven for His followers. And yet Psalm 41 verse 9 tells us, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You realize how vital it was for a close friend of Jesus to be the betrayer. Matthew Henry says 
It is hard to say whether more mischief is done to Christ's kingdom by the power and policy of its open enemies or by the treachery and self-seeking of its pretended friends. Nay, without the latter, its open enemies could not gain their point as they do. The enemy is always looking from the outside for someone on the inside. Because if he can get someone on the inside, he can wreak havoc like nobody's business. If the attacks come from the outside, have you felt this? If the attacks come from outside of Christian faith, they're not so tough. Oh, they might hurt. They might sting a little bit. It might, you might not see it coming. But when the attacks come from inside, those are hard to handle. We often say, oh Lord, I'll be persecuted for you. I just don't want to be persecuted by someone who believes in you. <laughs> let those atheists, you know, those non-believers, those heathen, let them persecute me. I can take that. But not my brothers. Not my sisters. Far too many Christians, by the way, put far too much faith in other Christians rather than our faith being in the Lord. Because when my faith is in the Lord, my love is for my brothers and sisters. And if someone is faithless to me, you know what? He's faithful. If someone's hurtful to me, he's not. If someone's going after me, even from within a fellowship of believers, my Jesus stands with me. Remember that. If you ever get hurt by another believer, it's going to happen. We're sinful people. Desperately in need of a Savior. We're going to mess it up. And we're going to get our messes on each other. So love the Lord. Trust in His faithfulness. And you'll find it a lot easier to love within the body. Jesus would continue loving Judas to the very end. At the last minute. Even calling Him at that point, friend. Do we fear the open enemies or the pretended friends of the gospel? Do we fear the open enemies or the pretended friends of the gospel? The answer ought to be no. No fear. But we'd be wise to carry a sword. Verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort... And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. A cohort is a battalion of Roman soldiers. Let me be clear about a battalion. A battalion is one of ten divisions of a Roman legion. What does that mean? A Roman legion is 6,000 men. A battalion is 600 It wasn't the chief priests and the couple of little guys who drew the short straw of the Roman army sent along as a guard. We are talking, likely, 600 Roman soldiers accompanying the the priests and the officers of the court flowing into the Garden of Gethsemane. 600. I'm not making this stuff up. That's what a cohort is. John uses the word intentionally and he intends for us to know it was a large, weaponized military outfit. (laughs) For a little Galilean rabbi and 11 of his buds, are you kidding me? And one kid in a sheet, if you read the Gospel of Mark. What possible threat... 
Could this Jesus be that you would have to send in not only the temple officers, the police force of the temple, but an entire battalion of Romans? Come on! It tells us how unnerved the chief priests really were. It tells us how concerned Rome was about any kind of a possible uprising that they would send that kind of representation to try and put it down as quickly as possible. Watch what happens, verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon Him, went forth. <laughs> what would you do? You're praying with your followers in Gethsemane, and here they come. Walking, marching in with their weapons drawn and ready. I wouldn't go forth. I would go aft. As fast as possible. Peter, um, why don't you talk to them? I'll be right back here. Gone. Jesus went forth, and He said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. If your Bible says, I am he, cross out the he. It is not there in the original language. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Ego me. I am. The same phrase we have seen throughout the Gospel of John when Jesus is declaring his oneness with the Father. I am that I am, God said to Moses there at the burning bush. Exodus 3.14, you tell them I am has sent you. And so they say, who? They say we seek Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And Judas, also who was betraying him, was standing with them. Watch this. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) Who did? 600 men of a Roman battalion. And all it took was two words. I am. Ego me. In the Hebrew, it's the tetragrammaton. What does that mean? It's the four letters. Y-H-W-H. What we pronounce Jehovah sometimes. We pronounce Yahweh. Some will say Yav. We don't even know how to pronounce it because the Jews won't. They won't say the name. They say Hashem, the name in Hebrew. They don't say Yahweh. They don't try to pronounce because there is such a a great degree of respect for the name. Well, you know what? They're right to do so. I'm not saying you shouldn't say Yahweh or Jehovah. What I'm saying is there is massive power in the name. He says, I am, and they hit the deck. It's the only time in Scripture where you're going to see anybody slain in the Spirit. That's it. They fall down. And I I would love to see this. It must have been comical. I am. And they are falling all over themselves to withdraw. You have 600 men in retreat by a single statement of one rabbi in sandals. I am. And down they go. Man, something like out of the Three Stooges. Or the Marx Brothers. Or Dumb and Dumber. Whatever it takes. They just... And all over themselves. I am. Gang, there is power in this name. 
There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the nature and the character of Jesus. And all he has to say is, I am, and down they go. Psalm 54 verse 1 says, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. I've got a lot to say about this that we will talk about on Sunday. Because it goes to John's intended purpose for the way he tells this happening in Gethsemane. Going on, verse 7. Therefore he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their own way. To fulfill the word which he had spoken of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave. Go get him, Peter. (laughs) And cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Keep your finger there. Go back a chapter to Luke's parallel passage. Luke chapter 22. It just cracks me up. And I think I've pointed this out every time we've come to the story in the Gospels. That Peter grabs his sword and goes after the greatest threat to Jesus. The high priest's slave. Guy who's probably sitting there with a little bread basket, you know, just watching the events. (laughs) His ears cut off. Luke chapter 22, verse 49. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Luke's the only one. Luke, the physician, is the only one who tells us that Jesus healed the ear of this slave. Right there in the moment. Marvelous. John adds two things to the story that we wouldn't have known otherwise. John tells us, first of all, the slave's name was Malchus. Malchus means kingdom. The slave whose name meant kingdom. Ironic. And John gives us the name. No one else does. None of the other gospel writers mention the name. Just John. Malchus is his name. How does John know? As you're going to see in just a moment, John is well acquainted with the high priestly household. He's got an in. Somehow, he has an awareness or is known and knows what goes on in the house. So him naming this guy Malchus, saying this is Malchus, is no more surprising than you Batman fans saying it's Alfred. <laughs> you know? You, you Downton Abbey fans talking about Mr. Carson. It's Malchus, the high priest's servant. So the slave's name is Malchus, but John also tells us something else no one else tells us. The swordsman's name was Peter. You notice Luke does not say that. Luke says, and someone grabbed a sword. You know, it's almost as though Luke is respectfully leaving Peter's name out. Leaving leaving Peter's impetuosity out of the story. (laughs) John has no problem telling it. John is the same one who has no problem telling us after the resurrection that the two of them took off running for the tomb and John got there first. (laughs) I beat Peter to the tomb, you know. I I sense a little uh, loving rivalry between John and Peter in a couple of places here. But more seriously, by the time John's writing this, Peter is probably dead. 
Having been crucified, we believe upside down because He didn't want to be crucified in the same way as His Lord. Peter had shown himself faithful and true. A true man of courage. So it's alright for John to point out where Peter was then versus where everybody reading this story now knows Peter ended up. One with no courage to one with great courage. You see, in the garden, Peter was lacking the spirit of the living God. Peter was lacking the power. Peter was running on his own intuition and, as I said, impetuosity. And so he grabs the sword, swinging wildly, cutting off the right ear. Which means the slave must have been ducking. He's got the sword in his right hand and he swings across and the slave must have ducked left and... Off goes the ear. Jesus grabs it, puts it right back on the side of the slave's head and heals it right there in an instant. Wouldn't you think that would make the battalion back off a bit? It's an amazing moment here. But i got to ask the question, what's Peter doing with a sword? A fishing pole I can understand. Should I get him, Lord? But a sword. What are you doing with a sword, Peter? Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 35. Because just prior to this, as Jesus is talking to them and giving them instruction, He says, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, Nothing. He said, But now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you, That this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And Jesus says to them, that's enough. I know your Bible translations say it is enough. And that's because some of the translators are like, well, is he saying two? Two should do. No. No. Jesus knows what's about to happen. Who in their right mind thinks two swords would be enough against a battalion of 600 Romans? He is saying to them, and the Greek language is far more clear than we read in our English, He's saying, enough of this talk. That is not what I mean. We have a couple of swords, Lord! It's kind of like the bread and the fish. Do you guys not understand the fish and the loaves, what I did here? And they didn't get it. And he had to explain it to them. And he's just given them another picture, another figurative illusion. What he's talking about there in Luke is the readiness of heart and soul and body for what's about to take place. Be ready, man. I heard one commentator compare it to saying, keep your powder dry. Now, if I told you on a Sunday morning, listen, it's going to get tough. Keep your powder dry. Those of you who don't know what that means would be like, baby powder? What do you mean? What are you talking about? (laughs) Those of you gun owners know exactly what I mean. You keep the powder dry so that when it's time to fire, you don't have a misfire. But if I said to you on a Sunday morning, keep your powder dry, would you go, oh man, i got to go buy a gun. Pastor Rick said, you've got to load up. It's arsenal time. (laughs) If you did that... Can I just say, find another church? (laughs) Because you cannot possibly take me seriously about keeping your powder dry. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Sell a coat and buy a sword, man. Be ready. Be prepared. It is about to get tough. That last mission I sent you guys out on a year and a half ago, (laughs) that was a cakewalk. Hard times are coming. Be ready, Jesus is saying. And that's why He immediately shuts down Peter's one-man assault there in the garden. As Peter impetuously decides he's going to take off against these guys, all gathered around. And it just makes the story that much more ironic to see this many Roman soldiers all lined up. It's like the remake of Star Wars. Do you remember the scene where Han Solo in the first Star Wars... You probably have to be a fan to even know what I'm talking about here. But he goes running like a madman around the corner, ah, you know, trying to let Luke and Lynn and the others get onto the Millennium Falcon. I know this story way too well. And he races around the corner, and in the first Star Wars, before they did the remake of it, he stops short, oh no, and there's like 12 stormtroopers standing there with guns. And they chase after him. Well, they remade it. And in the remake, when he comes around that corner, there are like 600, there's like a battalion of stormtroopers there. And it's really funny. Because, like, oh, okay, and he takes off back toward the ship. Well, that's what's going on here. Peter is swinging wildly, and there's this massive amount of soldiers there in front of him. Jesus says, Matthew 26, 52, put your sword back in its place. For all who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Which makes it even more clear to us that when he said, if you don't have a sword, buy one, he was alluding to difficulty. He wasn't saying, buy a sword. If you live by the sword, you're going to die that way. He says, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and listen to this, he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels. You remember what a legion is? 6,000 men. Twelve legions of angels, 72,000. Now that I would have liked to have seen. Jesus saying, Alright, Father, send him down. Boom! 72,000 angels, 600 puny Roman soldiers. And it would be a bloodbath. It would be over in a heartbeat. But Jesus is so cool. He is so calm. He is so resolute. Now I submit to you two things, two reasons why. Number one, because He's Jesus. And He just doesn't get rattled. Would you remember that in your life when you get rattled? Jesus is not. He doesn't freak out. You may dive into your prayer closet and be going, Lord, help me, save me. He's not sitting there beside you going, Yeah, we got to do something quick. No, He is... He's got it. He saw it coming. Just as John tells us, he saw it coming. Jesus, knowing all things, John 18, verse 4, that were coming upon him, went forth. He knew. And he's so cool. And he's so calm. Because he's Jesus. And because he had just been praying. Right before this. And again, this is the part John doesn't tell us, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. He was on his knees. He was pouring out in prayer. And the prayer prepared him. Prayer was so vital before all this went down, and Jesus knew that. And when he went into the garden, knowing the betrayal was underway, he went to pray, to be ready. And he was ready. Peter wasn't. Peter was flailing, wasn't he? 
wildly out of control. Jesus had just said to him moments before, Matthew 26.41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. What kind of temptation am I going to get into in a garden, Lord? How about a little sword play? Tempted to be an idiot. How about that? And Jesus says these words, and you know them well, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. People say that all the time. They don't even know that comes from Jesus. And He's talking to Peter. It's repeated in Mark 14.38. And in Luke 22.46, after Jesus has gone away and prayed three times, He comes back and He finds Peter, James, and John sound asleep again. And He goes, Why are you sleeping? Get up! Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Willing spirit, weak flesh. No verse ever described Peter better. Or the rest of us. See, my spirit tends to be on the weak side. My flesh, you know, my flesh is weak. My spirit is willing. I want to. And Paul says that. Romans chapter 7, Paul is very clear. Man, I, I want to do the right thing. But all the time, I want to do the right thing. I find myself doing the wrong thing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Willing flesh. Willing spirit. Weak flesh. Question is, in the battle of the soul, which one will win out? Let me be clear about this, because I had this come up just this week again. The idea of spirit, body, and soul. That each of us are... A trinity after the nature of our Father. Each of us have a physical body. That's one part of who you are. Each of us have an eternal spirit. That is our true nature. The the, the sense of who we really are. That will live on forever. It's, It's our real self. And we also have a soul. Spirit and soul are not the same thing. Not biblically speaking. If you track through the verses in Scripture that talk about spirit and soul, what you will find out is the spirit is the eternal nature, the soul is the seat of intellect. It's where you think. It's the mind. And we have a battleground, and the battleground is the soul. And the question is, who's going to win? The flesh or the spirit? You see... God has us come worship Him in spirit and in truth. God speaks to us, communicates us via the spirit to then influence the soul. But the flesh is also trying to influence the soul. And so that's where the battle is taking place in us. The flesh and the spirit. Battling in the soul, who's going to win? Which one will win? It's always the dog you feed. It's the one you feed. Feed your spirit, and your spirit will win. Feed the flesh, and the flesh will win. And we've got to learn to look at it that way. Listen, if we aren't used to making prayerful, spirit-led decisions before crises hit, when the crises hit, we are going to end up flailing our swords just like Peter. And I'm talking to Christians. And when I say swords, I think you know what I mean. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. See, there it is. The division of soul and spirit. Of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
How are people going to hear the word if we're taking this sharp instrument and lopping off their ears with it? Cutting off people's ears with the sword because we're out of control, because we're not prepared, because we're not calm and at peace from the times of prayer and from knowing how to truly handle this thing. Ephesians 4.14 says, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, wield well. Wield your sword well. Know this sword. Be familiar with the sword. I heard it said that Viggo Mortensen, when he was working on his role as as Aragon in uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, they gave him a big old sword that was his for the movie, and he carried it everywhere he went. If they went to McDonald's for lunch, he had his sword. At night in the hotel, he had his sword. Everywhere he went, he had the sword because he wanted to be so familiar with it that when he was acting, it looked like he knew this thing. Do we take this that seriously? When was the last time you sat down at McDonald's with your sword? Wield it well. I, I ask you to help me always do the same. I had a great conversation just this week with a sister, and I'm not going to name her because I've already called her out a few times recently, and that would embarrass her, and I'm not going to do that. I already did. Having a conversation with a sister that was much needed. She brought up something I shared last week. Maybe you remember, I said, if you don't have joy, you don't know Jesus. And she said, I almost sent you an email, but I didn't, because I didn't want it to come off wrong. But she said, when you said that, I winced a little bit because I wonder what about someone who is suffering with depression? And you tell them, if you don't have joy, you don't know Jesus. She was completely wrong, of course. I uh, No, I'm kidding. It impacted me. I stopped and I thought about that. And, and, I, and I wanted to say to you all here tonight... When I say, if you don't have joy, you don't know Jesus, the joy I'm talking about is far deeper than the smile on your face. It's far deeper than the laughter we shared last Wednesday. The joy I'm talking about is so deep, it undergirds even things like depression and sorrow and difficulty. It's a joy that knows no matter how low I get, Jesus is still under me. He still has me. And I do think... That knowing Jesus is what brings us out of depression better than anything else. That knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, gives us the answers to deal with the most difficult of life circumstances. But, back to my sister sharing. You know what, gang, I need that. Because I sit up here and I flap my gums for an hour, hour and fifteen, you know, Sundays and Wednesdays, that's a lot of time just to be blathering on. And it can be dangerous. I can swing a sword and lop off an ear. I never want to do that. Any more than I know any of you do. So together we walk this out. And together we search the Scriptures. And together we want to make sure that we are handling the sword correctly. Not flailing wildly. There are Christians who do. Grab hold of the sword and in the name of Jesus start just swinging. People's 
ears are getting cut off, and when that happens, they cannot hear a thing. By the way, Jesus knew all things. Why did He allow it to go this far in the garden? If Jesus knew what was about to happen before it happened, why would He allow poor little Malchus to get his ear cut off? Well, He knew He was going to heal it. Okay, I'll give you that, but still, some serious pain in the moment. Sharp, ear-splitting pain. Now, this is only speculation. Some would call it hearsay. (laughs) But many wonder if the reason why John names Malchus is because the family of Malchus and Malchus himself were well known in the early church. That Malchus came to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and that we may yet see Malchus in heaven someday. And I guarantee you, should that be the case, I am absolutely 100% certain that Malchus would say it was worth the earache to find salvation. Jesus, the Word of God. Get the picture here. Peter, the the well-meaning, impetuous follower of Jesus, swings the sword and lops off an ear. Jesus, the Word of God, picks up the ear and heals him. And that's the only sword we ever really need to apply to the ear. The sword of the Word. Jesus Himself. The reason why we spend so much time as we study through the Bible talking about Jesus is because when we understand the Word of God written as represented by Jesus, when we see how He handled the sword, how He exemplified the sword of the Word, then we know when we handle this, we're not just cutting off ears. We are, in fact, speaking the truth in love. We're not seeking to, as we've talked about, we're not trying to win arguments. We're here to win souls. It's not about me being right and them being wrong. It's about them finding Jesus. Because I have rightly handled the word of truth. That's what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. You hold in your hands a sharp instrument. A powerful weapon. And it requires of us deft and delicate treatment. To handle it right. To use it surgically. Man, use it with blunt force and you may cause deafness in somebody. Lord, Lord, teach us to rightly handle the word of truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, back in John 18, 11, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? By the way, the sword of the Word has a sheath. just came to me today. Put the sword into the sheath. What are you talking about? The heart. The heart is the sheath for the sword, the Word of God. Psalm 119.11, Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The psalmist doesn't say, Your Word I have contained in my soul. I've thought it through. I've logicked it out. I've studied it theologically. I get it. 
and I'm going to keep it right here in my head. That's not what he says. Your word I have treasured in my heart as a sword going into a sheath. Because the difference is the mind deals in logistics, but the heart deals in love. And when I learn to take his word into my heart, guess what happens when it comes back out? I am now speaking the truth in love. I'm coming from a place of relationship. I'm sharing the word of God because I truly care about the person with whom I'm sharing the word. And I'm not wildly flailing at someone I don't even know lopping off ears right and left. Jesus says, Peter, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? What cup? The cup of His wrath. The full mixture of God's wrath. Psalm 75, verse 8. A cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, and it is well mixed. And He pours out of this, surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. And on the cross, Jesus did that. On the cross, Jesus drank of the dregs of wickedness to the very last drop, taking all the wrath of God for all of the wickedness ever performed on the planet. So that all we need do is receive His forgiveness and we are saved. It's the most simple message and the most amazing of any ever spoken. So... The Roman cohort, verse 12, and commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Remember that? Remember when Caiaphas addressed the Sanhedrin and they weren't sure what to do about Jesus and everybody's given opinions and finally Caiaphas, the high priest, he stands up and he says, John 11.50, It is expedient for you that one man die for this people and that the whole nation not perish. And John tells us, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John nails it. He, he, he gives it absolutely right that Caiaphas was prophesying. Which is legitimate. He was a high priest. He was a wicked high priest, but he was still high priest. Hey, you remember Balaam? Balaam the seer? He was a wicked prophet, but he couldn't help but speak the words of God. And so here, Caiaphas had spoken that. John reminds us, remember, this is the guy who said, it's expedient for one to die for the people. And he was right. Jesus did need to die for all the people. So John confirms this inadvertent prophecy of the sacrifice of Jesus. But note this, that Jesus first goes to the house of Annas, not Caiaphas. Annas was the previous high priest. He was a father-in-law to Caiaphas. Annas was high priest from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. and he had recently been deposed from that office. Oftentimes when a new Roman procurator, a new governor would come in, they would kick out the high priest and put their own guy in. So when the procurator, whose name was Gratus, came in there, He booted Annas and he put in Caiaphas. 
Caiaphas then began to reign from about uh, A.D. 18. I say reign. He was high priest over the Jewish people. From A.D. 18 forward, Gratus was the Roman governor who was the predecessor of Pontius Pilate. Interesting, when Pontius Pilate came to Judea in A.D. 26 and took over the role of governor, he didn't boot out Caiaphas. Why not? Probably because they saw eye to eye. Because here's a guy, Pilate knew, who I've got in my pocket. This guy's got his wealth. He's got his position. He will play politics. And so he left Caiaphas there. But Annas retained great power and influence in Jerusalem and in Israel. Many of the people looked at him and still considered him high priest, feeling like he was unjustly put out, even though he was put into place by a previous governor himself. So they first take Jesus to Annas. We got him. They go to his house, and this would begin a total of six bogus trials that would last all night long. First, at the house of Annas, John 18 tells us. And then the house of Caiaphas, which John, by the way, just skips right over. And then he will go before the Sanhedrin. John doesn't mention them. Then he'll go before Pilate. John tells us about Pilate, but then Pilate sends him to Herod. John doesn't tell us about Herod. And then he goes back to Pilate. So it's Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. Six trials. And not a single one of them was legitimate. They were all unlawful, especially the Jewish trials. Completely unlawful based on Torah. John just deals with two of the six trials. Again, John has his purposes. And they are different from the other Gospel writers. He tells of the trial here of Annas. Some have gotten confused as you read through this. You think, well, all of a sudden are we at Caiaphas' house? This whole scene with Peter, is that in the courtyard of Caiaphas? And it's not, because later on we find out that he gets sent to Caiaphas' house. So this whole thing here now is going to take place, this first of the two trials that John deals with at the house of Annas. The second of the two trials John deals with will be before Pilate. And that's all he's going to cover. Interesting. The highest religious representation in the land and the highest political representation in the land. And that's who John will focus on. Verse 15. So Simon Peter was following Jesus and another disciple. Now the disciple was well known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. And that disciple, I believe, was John. I can't say with absolute 100% certainty. There are people who disagree. But I think with a pretty high certainty that yes, we're talking about John here. And we're told that he enters into the court of the high priest's home. Peter was standing at the door outside. Now, there's, there's a wall around the house. There's a door to the outside. You go through that door, pass through it, and you're still in the open air. You're in the courtyard before you've actually gone into the house. That's where they took Jesus. That's where John, I believe, followed him in. Peter is standing at the door because he's not a known person there. John is. They see him. Ah, oh, it's John. So he has access. It explains the access of this apostle. And so he enters in, Peter standing on the door outside, continuing on in verse 16, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Yeah, he's with me, let him in. Verse 17. 
Verse 17 says, The slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now her language in the Greek, she's not even being accusatory. Oftentimes we think she is. She's not. She's just asking a question that assumes a negative answer. Almost jokingly, you're not one of his disciples, right? And Peter goes, right. No, I'm not. He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. In the upper room, he was ready to die for Jesus. In the garden, he draws a defiant sword, and now a housemaid rattles his confidence. A little slave girl offhandedly says, you're not one of his guys, right? No, I'm not. I'm not. How does it happen? How do you go from such confidence to literally within minutes such absolute broken despair? And Peter's there. Where? Well, look where he is. How'd you be doing in the courtyard of the high priest watching your Lord Jesus taken to task? How easy would it be to stand up there? It's easy to stand up in the upper room. Not so easy in the courtyard of the high priest. Let me ask you this question. How do you warm your heart? When the nights are cold and uncertain, how do you get warm? Jesus didn't go to the courtyard of the high priest and warm himself around the charcoal fire. Jesus went to Gethsemane and prayed. Jesus entered into the presence of the Father in prayer. And that's where Jesus got warm, which is why, again, he is so cool the rest of the night. He is so collected. He is so together. He is unshakable. But there are a lot of ways that we can warm ourselves in the cold of this world. Drinks that warm the throat and calm the soul, relax you after a long day. Images that excite the flesh and heat up passions. So-called friends who counsel you into the heat of sin. The first psalm, verse 1, says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. And right now, Peter's in the courtyard of the enemy. Psalm 1, verse 2 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever He does, He prospers. May it be said of us that our delight is in the law of the Lord even over and above. Please hear me clearly. The law of the land. The Supreme Court came back with one of two rulings that I'm watching this month. The first ruling was ruling that Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel. A child had a passport and wanted Jerusalem, Israel on his passport. He's he's dual Israeli and American citizen. A Jewish young man and his parents wanted Jerusalem, Israel on the passport. 
And the administration said, no. You can only put Jerusalem on the passport. You can't say Jerusalem, Israel, because we do not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court came back and said, no, Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel. To which I would say to our Supreme Court, respectfully, you need to talk that one over with God. Who chose it as His capital and the capital of Israel. And in that instance, my friends, I depart from the law of this land and I go with the law of my God. And there's one more ruling that we'll see how it goes in the next couple of weeks here. Do not arm yourselves. Do not keep the powder dry. Don't get a second sword. Just be alert and be aware about what's happening in the world around us. Peter is warming himself by the fires of the enemy and he's, he's now just two replies away from complete and utter denial of Jesus. Verse 19. The high priest then, we're still talking about Annas, questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him and said, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Completely reasonable. Very sharp. Very wise. And note what Jesus says. Annas wants to question him. He questions him about two things. I want to know about your doctrine and I want to know about your disciples. Tell me about both. Notice this. Jesus first covers His disciples with silence. He never answers that question. Tell me about your disciples. He never does. Jesus doesn't say a word. Well, Peter and John are out in the courtyard warming their hands right now. Go get them and bring them in here. They'd be dead. He doesn't say a word. He covers them. Even in the midst of of his own first trial, he is still protecting his men. But what about his teaching? Well, as he's covering his disciples, he is confirming the open access of his doctrine. He says, look, I hid nothing. I taught in the synagogues. I I taught in the temple. And he might even could have added, this whole last week, where have you been? I've been in temple. I've been teaching. I've been sharing. Man, he is. Jesus is still wide open about the truth. I love that about him. He's still just telling it as it is. Here's the truth. It's incumbent upon us as his people to do the same thing. Tell the truth. The truth of the Word of God. Don't shy away from it. Even if it's counter to culture, tell the truth. Jesus never hid it. He never drew back from it. And it is still available to anyone who wants to read it or hear it. It's right here. And had Annas been in the synagogue or in the temple, he would have heard it. Had he just gone to church? What are they teaching over there at the bridge? What is that pastor saying behind those closed doors? My answer? Come in here. And I realized several years ago, I could never run for President of the United States. I know you're shocked and dismayed. (laughs) I can never do it. Why? I have 11 years of Bible teaching online 
You know how many sound bites would immediately condemn me in this country? I'm an equal opportunity offender. Tell the truth. Be clear. We walk in the light as He is in the light. And as we do, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We're open, we're honest, we're true. That's Jesus. And by the way, don't ever make assumptions or accusations regarding something someone said when you weren't there. Even if it's about you, it gets back around, the gossip train comes back, and you hear that someone said something about you. If you didn't hear it with your own ears, don't assume. Go to them, go to the brother, go to the sister and say, hey, let's, let's clear this up. Because what I heard was this, but I want you to tell me. Let's just be straight here with this. The issue is, in, is that when you yourself are not present to hear what's said, and you begin to assume, it's bad for the heart. Jeff and I were just talking about this the other day. And one of the great ahas about why the Bible is so opposed to gossip is not because gossip hurts the person you're gossiping about. Gossip hurts your own heart. Gossip begins to make you close up. Gossip begins to hurt you as you spew about other people's stuff. So don't do it. Jesus never did. He was clear. He was open. And by the way, third thing He does right here is He calls for witnesses. Because Jesus knows what's happening is completely unjust. He illuminates what a sham this first trial is before Annas. Jewish law required several things that are violated throughout this whole night. First of all, Jewish trials should never happen at night. That was part, that was written into law. And the reason for that was that everything would be in the daylight where things are clear and understandable and nobody's sleepy or groggy or missing anything. Let's, we just trials by day only. All six of, Jewish, of, of Jesus' trials would be that night. Violation of the law. Secondly, Jewish law required a minimum of two witnesses to confirm a fact. Here's Annas alone going after Jesus. Jesus says, hey, you want to do this? Get some witnesses. Go ahead, pull in. Anybody who's been listening to me teach, bring them in and ask them what you're asking me. Ask them about my doctrine. Ask them what they have heard me say. The Bible says, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Remember what happened with the woman in the courtyard, John chapter 8? The woman caught in adultery, thrown down before Jesus. Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all leave. And what does Jesus say? Is there no one here to condemn you? No, there's not, Lord, she said. Well, neither do I condemn you. Because by law, Jesus kept the law perfectly. By law, he could not condemn her. He would just be one person, and he didn't witness it. Got to have witnesses. It was an illegal proceeding. And then things intensify in verse 22. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? And it was the first of many fists that would strike Jesus on this night. How would you respond to someone pounding you across the face? You are calmly responding, respectfully responding to the high priest and all of a sudden, BAM! What would you do? 
I shudder to think, but I would probably get my back up. I'd probably at least be ready to go right after the person. If I wasn't bound, Jesus, as cool as a cucumber, says, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Wow. So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, back in the courtyard, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, (laughs) said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? We're told in the other Gospels that Peter cursed. He swore. He denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Luke tells us, at that very moment, in that very courtyard, as Peter hits that third denial, in the background, right then, they lead Jesus out into the courtyard, bound, and he gets eye to eye with Peter. Looks right at him. Luke 22.61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. Luke 22.62 And he went out and he wept bitterly. That's as far as we're going to go tonight, but I want to leave you with a very personal question. Something to consider as we we close our, our Bibles and ponder what we've seen so far in this first trial. The question is, what was the look on Jesus' face? Boy, how can we know that, right? Just, just think for a moment. You read the passage. You read Luke saying, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What's your reaction? What do you think Peter saw? Because the way you answer that question says a lot about how you see Jesus. No, he looked at him with judgment. He looked at him with tears. He looked at him with deepest compassion. How do you see Jesus looking at you in your moment of denial? It'll tell you where you're at with Jesus and how you view the Lord's heart. I can tell you with absolute assurance, it was a look of deepest compassion. It was a look of deepest love. How do you know? Because Lamentations 3.22 tells us the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. And note this, they are new when? Every morning. And the rooster had just crowed, and it was morning. The crowing rooster, the sun just starting to peek up, and Jesus looks with new mercies at Peter in the midst of his third denial. I've wondered before how Peter got up every day after that. How he heard that sound. The rooster's crow. And you know he heard it maybe not every single day of the rest of his life, but most days. They didn't have Timex. 
They had the rooster. Every rooster's crow for the rest of his life. And i got to tell you, I think for Peter, it was the sound of grace. Oh, the world would say the sound of condemnation. In fact, did you know, history tells us that Peter, when he got up to teach, years after the fact, those who would heckle him would stand in the back and go, Cock-a-doodle-doo! Just to try and rattle this apostle as that story spread. I think every time he heard a rooster crow, Peter heard the sound of grace. Your mercies are new, your loving kindness, your compassions. Every morning, great is your faithfulness. Let's stand up together. It is, it is easy to stand up for Jesus at church. I know, I do it all the time. I almost find it comical when when I give an opinion, maybe a strong opinion about politics or about what's going on in the world, and someone comes up to me and says, Well, that was gutsy this morning. Let me tell you. No, it wasn't. (laughs) You know how easy it is to share biblical values here? I can do it all day long. I mean, in 11 years, I've had two walkouts. 11 years! That's a whole lot more walking in than walking out. So that's pretty good. It is easy to stand up for Jesus at church. And when you're in the garden of prayer, it's easy to draw the sword and defend Him. But it's hard to stand in the courtyard of the enemy. It just starts to fall apart there. And that's why Jesus had told Peter and the apostles, boys, be ready. Psalm 26 verse 5 says, I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. So when you're in the camp of the enemy, and you will be, when you find yourself standing in the courtyard... Be sure you're ready. Make sure you've been in prayer. Make sure you've handled rightly the word of truth. Father, You show us such calm and such resolution on Jesus' face and in His words and how He handles all of this from here right up to the crucifixion to His last breath. Absolute amazing peace because he was in communication with you throughout he was ready and I pray for that same readiness to fall on us by the power of your Holy Spirit among us by our understanding of the sword the word of God tucked into the sheath of our hearts Lord Jesus may we be a people prepared for all eventualities That we don't lose our heads and take off people's ears and and flail wildly. But we stand as resolute as Jesus in times of crisis. Because we trust You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. One last thing. They're about to take Jesus. They will take Him bound to Pilate.
As I said, John skips Caiaphas completely. He skips Herod completely. But there's something going on here. And between now and Sunday, you might just want to read through John 18 and John 19, because I can tell you this much, and this is what we'll be talking about Sunday. No one's dragging Jesus anywhere. They think they have Him bound. Truth is, He is bound and determined to see this thing through.